Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Examining the issues. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed with Mark Morano. All right. Well, we have an exciting guest for you later on after the first commercial break. We're going to be joined by former Margaret Thatcher advisor, Lord Christopher Monckton. And this is a treat. You're going to enjoy it. He's going to do a breakdown of the climate, energy, great reset agenda and what's happening, uh, the latest with what's happening in Europe, King Charles, Tipping Points, COP28, uh, and some of his scientific research in this. I think you're going to have a lot of fun. Christopher Monckton is a joy every time uh, you get to meet him or every time he's on your program or get to hear him speak. All right. In the meantime, breaking news alert. Planned vehicle shortages are coming soon to you. Uh, it's it's a, it's an amazing thing. This was the leg- this was um, an EU uh, politician is now warning uh, that or actually it's a Canadian politician warning of the coming car shortages. And it's great to see people start talking about this because this is Danielle Smith from Alberta. It's great to hear people talking about this because I have been warning about this in my book, The Great Reset, and for years prior that the purpose of gas-powered car bans are not to put you in an electric vehicle and you'll go on happily ever after with this beautiful infrastructure network. The purpose is exactly what Danielle Smith warns Albertans about, uh, is that they're creating intentional car shortages to force you into mass transit and to force you to within 15-minute cities and to force your freedom of movement severe limitations on, on, on freedom of movement. And that has always been the goal. So having said that, what's the latest news right now on, on uh, EVs, electric cars? Because if they're banning, and the other question to ask, and I love asking this question is, if, you're, if your product is so great, EVs, solar panels and wind, they're just taking over. They're so much cheaper. They're awesome. They're, why do you have to ban the competition? If they're so great and we should do this and people can make money and they're going to save money and it's going to be efficient and it's great for the earth and they're just they're, their electricity rates are cheaper and fossil fuels are just so expensive. And why do you have to ban oil, gas as the UN summit wants to do? Why do you have to phase out fossil fuels? Why do you have to ban gas powered cars? Why do you have to ban meat if Bill Gates laboratory meat and insects are so yummy? Because we know it's bullshit. We know they're offering an inferior product at inferior prices, with inferior economics, with inferior impacts in your life, negative impacts in your life. But yet we're told it's the way. Now, my analogy is, say you're a, a, a football team and you say, we're the best ever out there. The competition's terrible. They can't do this. They can't. We are the best ever. We're going to have the greatest victory of all time. And you show up at the field and you're all ready. You got 100,000 fans packed in. And they say, well, where's the other team? Where, when's the game starting? And you say, oh, well, we banned the other team from playing. We don't need it. We don't need no stinking game. We've declared ourselves the best. We're better than anyone else. That's why we banned them. Because what's the point of playing? We're that good that we don't need to prove it or show you. That's the entire green energy analogy in a nutshell. And that is exactly what's happening with EVs. Now, a couple updates here. 
EV companies are careening toward bankruptcy. And this is according to uh, Steve Moore's great daily newsletter from the Heritage Foundation. We've said it many times. If you want to kill an industry, have the government subsidize it. Who would have thought the Greens would have learned this now with three decades of hundreds of billions of dollars of wind and solar energy handouts? Yet the renewable energy sector is still nowhere near profitable. More on that in a moment. And you've made up almost no ground to replace fossil fuels anywhere in the world, least of all the U.S. And by the way, 100 years ago, 80% of our energy, fossil fuels. Today, 80% of our energy, fossil fuels. Let's put trillions more. And that's exactly what they want to do. $76 trillion was from a think tank in Europe of what we need to spend to make the energy transition happen. I think it's easier to transition your gender than even you come close to transitioning the energy, what they're talking about here. Okay. Continuing on with Steve Moore. Now we have the government running the same game plan of subsidizing with, with EVs. The feds have, have, have plowed billions of dollars into electric vehicle factories. Many states and the federal government are setting dates that require all new cars to be EV. Remember, just like East Germany, where you only had one government-approved car, that crappy East German Trabant, which you had to wait in some cases 10 years plus to get into these two-cylinder lawnmower-powered cars, the governments today in 2023 going into 2024 are telling us you can only have one government approved car. That is progress, ladies and gentlemen. What the, the uh, Berlin Wall fell 1989 on, in November, and and here we are. I, I can't do the math on that, but is that that's 35 years ago, 34 years ago? Uh, here we are, literally repeating history's past mistakes. And let's hope our wall gets torn down. Okay. Many states, federal government are setting dates that require uh, the phase out, all new or, or new cars to be electric vehicles. The feds and the states are spending billions and more on these EV charging stations. And by the way, the Biden administration spent billions and they only have one, I believe, at the one charging station built now. You get a $7,500 check from Uncle Sam if you buy an electric vehicle. So you're getting bribed. Yet despite this mountain of freebies to juice the electric car sales, the Wall Street Journal reports that four of the most touted EV startups have all crashed and burned this year. And, and it's incredible. They go on and they're showing you all these prices, all these different uh, vehicles. And now because of this, uh, I believe it's Saab Motor Audi, Audi is going to put the brakes on the rollout of electric car models as this is according to Yahoo Finance. So this is not conservative media against you know net zero. This is corporate mainstream media that just can't hide the dripping facts of the utter and abysmal failure. Here it is. Audi Automotive will hit the brakes on its rollout of electric car models as consumer enthusiasm wanes in the face of high prices compared to petrol or gas-powered models. Gernot Dahlia, the boss of the Volkswagen-owned brand, said he wants to avoid flooding dealerships and factories with the vehicles as sales slow. The advantage of the electric vehicles is becoming visible to the consumers step-by-step, step, he told Bloomberg. Uh, of course, he's trying to spin this, like, well, we just need, the public needs time to accept it. No, the public has investigated in the U.S. It's only 6% of sales right now, and it has trouble seemingly to go any higher. They realize an electric car is a lark, something fun as a second or third vehicle, or as a first vehicle for a wealthy individual in very specific commuting situations where you're not going to want to go far and you're not in particularly cold weather environment. Uh, I mean, you can go on and on and on on this. One other point, 
uh, I'll get to the, there's a couple, two other points. Well, one of the points right now is Joe Biden is telling federal employees to use electric vehicles and mass transit as official travel for federal government. And they're now canceling government sponsored trips. I, I have a sort of split thing on this. On one hand, I think it's outrageous that they're doing all this virtue signaling. On the other hand, these people work for the government. They should be the one, they should be the guinea pigs. No one else should have to be subject. Only government employees and government agencies should follow the rules that they make. Uh, the Biden administration is directing federal agencies to prioritize the use of sustainable transportation. Nothing sustainable at about an electric car. Half a million pounds of materials, typically from China, rare earth mining, digs the earth, digs the earth deep, uh, and digs the earth in non-friendly environmental ways. And of course, you recharge the electric vehicles on fossil fuels uh, almost anywhere you go around the world. And 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 then, of course, you have the whole issue of recycling the batteries and you have all the other issues uh, unrelated to environment, just the, the impracticality of it. Uh, for official use of the government as part of efforts to build a clean transportation future, the White House said, in new federal guidelines. Uh, as the nation's largest employer with an annual business travel purchasing power of $2.8 billion, the federal government is leading by example and shifting to cleaner transportation. First of all, it's not cleaner, so that's bullshit, including American-made electric vehicles and charging infrastructure. Okay, so that's going on. Well, that's happening. They're trying to force people into, um, into these electric cars, uh, but people being federal employees. Here's the latest. Half of all Buick, which is General Motors car division, are taking buyouts from General Motors to avoid having to sell GM's electric cars. And this is from Breitbart News. Almost half of all Buick dealers across the United States have opted to take buyouts from General Motors to avoid having to sell electric vehicles on their lots at a time when Consumer Reports shows Americans are increasingly turned off by electric vehicles. So there you go. That's just one example. No matter how much they try to pump into this, no matter how much they do it, it's not working. The other thing is green energy company SunPower, after getting almost $10 million from Department of Energy loans and from the uh, uh, NASA contracts, is now failing. This is another failed green company. And this is pretty fast. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act was only passed I guess it was two years ago now, or maybe a little bit, maybe a year and a half, actually, is what's passed. So this is quick money, and they can't even make it work. You're a company. You are, your competition is being banned, fossil fuels being regulated and, 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 and through ESG, banks defunded. You're a company that's getting favorable subsidies. You're getting millions of dollars in government handouts. You're getting all the mandates that are benefiting you. You're getting like you're the golden child and you still can't even make your company stay afloat after receiving 10, almost $10 million. That is how bad this green energy fiasco is going. But before you get all excited and say, oh, well, the government will have to realize and back off, it doesn't work that way. It works the opposite way. They'll say, well, well, President Obama did an $80 billion stimulus, 2009, and that all failed. We had everything from Solandra to electric battery, battery makers, all kinds of failures. And once that money all ended out, it all sort of just petered out. We were promised millions in green jobs, which never materialized, even with all the subsidies. So now what's happening 
is they're not saying, well, this is a failure. They're saying, well, oh, President Obama is doing, um, President Biden is doing hundreds of billions. So he's probably quadrupled or quintupled what President Obama did in 2009 in terms of green energy stimulus. And that's failing. So what's the solution? That maybe they're doing, they need a course correction, that this is a bad policy, that this is never going to work, that this is horrible and it's bad for American people, it's bad for the economy, it's bad for, no. Mm-mm-mm-mm. You got to understand government. You got to understand the ideology of the green movement. This is proof positive and only proof that the government must double down and triple down. They need to spend hundreds of billions, ain't even scratching the surface. This, these companies, this solar power, sun power would not be going bankrupt. These electric car makers would not be going bankrupt as we're starting to see. And these cars would not be sitting at lots if the government would five, 10, 15, 20 times increase their spending. And that's the issue. They need to increase spending and they need to keep the money flowing because uh, and, and, and much higher levels because that's how you make success. Uh, or as Ronald Reagan said in 1964, the more the plans fail, the more the planners plan. And in this case, to make it more apt, the more the spending fails, the more the yeah you know, the more the spending you need to keep the failure going at such spectacular levels. So that's going to be the solution here. Is we didn't do enough, and they're going to double, triple, quintuple, and ten. I don't know how to say ten times in another way other than ten times the amount of money on that. So it's just incredible. And remember, they don't care if it's good for you. They don't care if people didn't vote for this. These gas powered car bans and meat restrictions and even energy restrictions. Why? Because they're interested in control. They're interested in their own power. And that's why I have a clip of Anthony Fauci. I had never seen this before. I think it's audio only, but I had never heard it or seen it where he just was so brazen about what vaccine mandates do and how you make them happen. Because ultimately, everything I just said about green energy is from the root of this power of trying to do it. So this is Anthony Fauci. I want you to listen. I might play it twice so you can hear it. I'll play it the first time and give you some analysis and then play it again. Anthony Fauci bragging about how vaccine mandates, how they work so well. Once people feel empowered and protected legally, you are going to have schools, universities and colleges that are going to say, you want to come to this college, buddy, you're going to get vaccinated. It's been proven that when you make it difficult for people in their lives, they lose their ideological bull and they get vaccinated. Uh, No, it's not been proven. I had the same forces going against me. You won't be able to travel. You won't be able to eat in restaurants. And I didn't get vaccinated. So bullshit back to you, Anthony Fauci. It didn't work. No one in my family got it. My 93-year-old mother didn't get it. So uh, stuff it to you. But this was, actually, this was probably a two-year-old quote. And what's interesting about it is, just the raw embrace of government power. They don't care even if it's good for you or not. They're just interested from a public policy perspective is we need to get people from point A to point B. And we're gonna use raw force and we're gonna pound the shit out of them until they do what we want. Let's hear it one more time because I think this is important. This is the philosophy of net zero, of the climate agenda, of the great reset, of COVID and medical authoritarianism. Uh, Let's go ahead and listen to this one more time. Once people feel empowered and protected legally, you are going to have schools, universities 
and colleges are going to say, you want to come to this college, buddy? You're going to get vaccinated. It's been proven that when you make it difficult for people in their lives, they lose their ideological bull and they get vaccinated. I would say the opposite is true. When government does this kind of crap, we double down and triple down on our ideological bullshit, as he calls it, because it is not uh, something that people will take lying down. And, and it's the overreach, this philosophy that Anthony Fauci pushed, and you know, still on college campuses today, there's still some vestiges of this. It's that philosophy which causes the great resist the great awakening and the hope that people are going to push back against this madness and this tyranny. Uh, and they are investigating Anthony Fauci. The only thing he's probably really vulnerable on is going to be the, uh, the, the lab leak theory and how he covered it up knowingly. And Jeffrey Sachs, love to get Jeffrey Sachs, by the way, as a guest. He's the NYU or Columbia University professor who was a World Health Organization insider who went to work on these and he trusted Anthony Fauci, Peter Hozek, all these friends of Fauci. Within a couple months, he realized they were lying. Fauci was lying. Francis Collins was lying. Peter Hozak was lying. The public health establishment was lying. He's left without an ideological home now. And uh, this is an um, incredible story uh, because he has the courage to come out and actually say this. And this is Jeffrey Sachs, professor. Uh, he's you know a, a fascinating guy. I think he's being red-pilled on a lot of different things right now. Okay. This is the Mark Morano Show, Unleashed. When we come back, we'll be joined by uh, Lord Christopher Monckton, uh, former Thatcher advisor. And we're going to have a lot of fun going through the net zero agenda. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. Stay tuned. Jeremy Nell on TNT Radio. Being South African, I'm, I know the situation and it's incredibly dire. Basically, our farmers, mostly white, have been under attack for years and years and years. And when I say attack, I mean that physically, don't I? Yes. Um, since the dawn of democracy in South Africa, since 1994, we had an average of uh, one farm attack every second day. Um, so it averages around uh, 175 to 190 farm attacks every year. And we had a farm murder on average every fifth day. Um, but over the last few months, both of those numbers have picked up. Murders in other sectors of society are not accompanied by the same levels of brutality and torture as you will find in farm murders. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk TNT Radio. I'm Fire Battalion Chief Isaac Sanchez. And normally we like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourselves and your family safe during wildfires. But given the historic impacts that the weather has had on our state this year, we would like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourself safe during extreme weather. If you reside in an area susceptible to flooding, please take the necessary steps to prepare to evacuate if advised. Make sure you've identified at least two exit routes out of your neighborhood as one of them may be blocked or flooded. As the weather develops, remember to check in on vulnerable neighbors and family members. They may need additional time to prepare for evacuation. And just like during a wildfire, if you feel unsafe, please evacuate. You don't have to wait for the order to come. Keep an emergency go bag ready in case you need to evacuate. And always remember to plan for the safety of your pets as well. If you must leave, never drive around roadblocks. It can take as little as 12 inches of water to sweep your vehicle away. And always remember the mantra, turn around, don't drown. Be aware of first responders working in highly impacted areas, especially on the roads. For additional safety tips and updates on CAL FIRE activities, follow us on social media 
or visit fire.ca.gov. Internet. Internet. A stream online. TNT Radio.live. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano. Well, joining us now uh, is Lord Christopher Moncton, former Margaret Thatcher advisor and a, a, a man of many hats, pharmaceuticals uh, consultant and a brilliant mathematician in his own right and excellent uh, climate analyst and climate uh, expert, I would call him. So welcome to the uh, Unleashed with Mark Morano, Christopher. Well, Mark, it's a pleasure to be with you again. You were over here in the spring and we mobbed up a financial conference we <laughs> invited, and they thought they were going to shout us down and show us how wrong we were to be sceptical. And after we'd both spoken, there were long faces all around the room as they suddenly realised that none of the maths adds up. Yeah, what Christopher is referring to, I'll explain to the audience, is we were invited to a green entrepreneur, green tech investment seminar, and they thought it'd be a good idea to bring in two climate deniers, as it were, to debate uh, their experts. And they had, it was, I think it was, was it three against two or two against two? But anyway, we had a audio, uh, hundreds of people in a ballroom at one of your nice, was it the Dorchester? Was it one of the nicest the hotels in London? Yeah. Dorchester. And within 10 minutes, we had at least half the audience applauding for us and the audience loved the debate so much that they told the moderator and the moderator canceled the the the, the event after us and extended our debate uh, and it, it went so well that afterward people were coming up and praising us it turns out that when when the even these climate uh, act these climate events when they hear both sides they uh, they invariably can't hold the warmest or the climate activist narrative because it just falls apart under even any scrutiny. <laughs> well, that raises a very interesting point, which is that there has been the most ruthless campaign of cancelling and silencing of those of us who disagree with what I will, yes. with some justification, call the Communist Party line on the climate. Yes. That uh, most people literally haven't heard the other side of the case. I was talking to a former chairman of the MCC, the Maryland Cricket Club, a few days ago. Now, they don't come more establishment than that. And both he and his wife were horrified when I suggested that there might be something just a little bit <laughs> wrong with climate science, and that the numbers didn't add up and the economics didn't add up. Nothing added up. And there was really no point in doing anything about it. And he said, why are all those people over in Abu Dhabi then? I said, well, they have all not been allowed to hear the other side. And quite clearly, you haven't either. And they said, that's because there isn't another side. And that's how one-sided the debate has become. Well, it's, it truly is. Well, speaking of that, we had 190 plus nations. I was in Dubai for the week. And mm -hmm. I hate to say this, but you, of course, could not go. We would have loved to have brought you. But for some reason, you have a lifetime ban by the United Nations at these climate summits. Before we get into that, do you want to explain why you are banned for life, you, Christopher Moncton, from ever attending another United Nations climate summit? <laughs> yes, at the end of the Qatar um, climate conference, it was hilarious. I arrived early for the final session. And the only comfortable seats were the ones for the delegates. So I sat in the one from the delegate from Burma or Myanmar, as they now call themselves. And he was obviously partying in the souk because he didn't reappear. 
And eventually the room filled up and various people who'd been sleeping in their chairs woke up for a bit. And the chairman said, well, now this is the final session. Does anybody else who hasn't spoken so far want to say anything? And if they do, just press the button in front of you. So I did what I was told by the chairman. I pressed the button in front of me and a representative of the chairman came to see me. He said, look, you can only talk for less than a minute, but you'd be very welcome to talk. So I said, fine. And then a few moments later, I was called and I said, well, uh, there's been no global warming for, at that time, I think 16 years. It would eventually be nearly 19 years before the warming resumed. And perhaps we ought to check the science before we go any further towards trashing the economies of the West. Yes. Now, this led to howls of outrage from around the room. And the UN, when they put up this video clip on their channel, cut it off before you could hear all the hoots and wails and weeping and gnashing, gnashing of national <laughs> health dentures as they sort of were upset because somebody had actually said there might not be the problem they thought that there was. And so I was immediately arrested, frog-marched out of the meeting, taken into a holding cell where a UN representative murmured into his phone for 10 or 15 minutes. And then he said, right, we're handing you over to the Qatari authorities. And I was taken <laughs> to another holding cell with one of those metal military desks on it and an angle poise lamp looking into my face. And a guy in military uniform and a red beret from Qatar with a, a rather a tiresome moustache sitting there looking swarthy and saying, well, now, unfortunately, you have been debadged by the UN and without the UN's badge, your visa has become invalid and you are therefore unlawfully in Qatar. And if you haven't left within three hours, you will be arrested and detained yeah. during the Emir's <laughs> pleasure in the Qatar prison. And the Qatar prison is one of the most deeply unpleasant places on earth. <laughs> so I was very anxious to get out. I managed to get a British Airways flight out of Qatar, literally with 15 minutes before the deadline, and they had to let me go. You could see them grimacing as I got onto the plane. Um, and they decided that for daring to say that there hadn't been any global warming during practically all the years during which they'd been having these conferences, yes. I should be debadged. So it shows just how intolerant they are of anybody's point of view except the Communist Party line. Well, that's a great story. Now, you know, something similar happened to Craig Rucker and I, a C-Fact, in 2016. I had a cardboard cutout of Donald Trump, a paper shredder, and I got the UN Paris Agreement outside the media tent, started mm. shredding it with, and I had a MAGA red hat, you know, Donald Trump hat. I was swarmed by armed UN climate cops, and Craig and I were thrown out into the desert of Marrakesh. Now, it was only, we had to wander the desert, but it was only about a football field of wandering. And then they set the cops back, confiscated my briefcase, and then they, of course, debadged us, and they banned us for life. But what we did, and, and it was a miracle, it worked, we petitioned to be reinstated, and we were reinstated on only two conditions. We had to sign a pledge of behavioral things, and we had to go and meet with them in person and personally pledge that we would not be bad boys and we would behave from then on. So we barely got back in. We did our own stunt, so we barely got back in. So maybe there's hope for you. Maybe if you pledge, I think there's no way they let me back the in. UN. <laughs> I, I know where all the bodies are buried, you know, scientifically, <laughs> economically, and practically. There's no way they know that I was doing enormous sort of damage to the Communist Party. Yes, you were. You were clearly. 
you were the highlight of those summits because you would go, we would sponsor you with CFAG, get you over there and just yeah. let you go. Whether we had press conferences, we gave us venues. Have, I remember the story, I think it was at the Rio uh, Earth Summit in Brazil. You were having lively debates on the UN buses that were taking us back and forth between the hotels and conference centers. Uh, I'm sure they got reports of Moncton all over the place. And I remember Bali 2007, you even donned the, the white medical coat and you were you, you did a, you did a protest. You tell tell us about that briefly. I think that's why oh, yeah, well, C organized a protest where we all yes. dressed up in white lab coats and yes. marched around outside and the UN police were gritting their teeth and not quite sure what to do and murmuring into their phones, which is what UN police <laughs> seems to spend most of their time doing. Um, but also in Bali, when I arrived, uh, I was in charge of the CFAC dele delegation that year. And uh, so I went along and saw the the bureaucrats and I said, look, what we'd like to do is give a daily press conference inside the venue. Yes. And they said, yes, of course. And they laid it all on. I had given the lady behind the counter a box of chocolates first and nobody apparently had done this before. So nothing was too much trouble. And they allowed us to have daily press conferences until the woman who really ran things arrived two or three days later, discovered to her horror that not just skeptic, but Moncton in particular, was holding well-attended <laughs> daily press conferences which were getting enormous coverage worldwide. And she came in while the press conference was going on, threw all the press out, and told us we were never again going to be allowed to have a press conference in any UN venue. So yeah. what we can see from these stories is just how terrified the blob is of any debate or confrontation however polite i mean you are polite i am polite of course we use our sense of humor we put on our white lab coats we ride camels in the desert and get thrown off we do all sorts of things which get enormous publicity and that they don't like they want to have the field entirely clear to themselves yeah. and simply by stifling all debate they have succeeded in letting nearly everybody think that there really is no alternative point of view. And that is how you get dictatorship. That's how it began in Germany. And in fact, they're using the same techniques as the Nazis used, as Goebbels used. I wasn't allowed to say even this in the German parliament a couple of weeks ago, where I was giving testimony in front of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And I, I sent a draft saying, well, I'd like to say that the techniques by which those who disagree with the Communist Party line on the climate are being silenced are the same technique that was invented by Goebbels, which is known as reputational assassination. His word for that was Rufmort. And people who say to me, oh, well, there's no such thing going on, I just tell them, read Moncton's Wikipedia entry, and you'll <laughs> see exactly what they do and how they do it. And if I try to correct any of the lies that are on the Wikipedia yes. page, within minutes, they're minutes, changed back. Yes. I um, gave up on that. I gave up on Wikipedia years ago. It's not worth it. They have an army I of actually people. got in touch with, with the pornographer who founded Wikipedia. I managed to track him down and got hold of him. And I said, look, this is unacceptable. I want this put right. And he very fairly got one of his editors to get in touch. She rewrote the bio to take out all the lies. And then they also banned for life the person who'd been rewriting some two and a half thousand people like us, uh, our, our entries, to make us look 
stupid and and wicked at the same time and uh, i managed to get him tracked down by our security services we knew his name we didn't know where he was and it turned out that he was doing all this from a village in cambridgeshire where the security services tracked him down because he had incautiously normally these communists don't join anything because you can track them if they do but he joined his local rowing club and that's how we found him and right. so he was then banned from Wikipedia until the communists took complete control, drove out uh, to a very large extent the pornographer who founded it and drove out altogether his co-founder. And then when the communists had retaken complete control, they allowed this communist to go back to rewriting everybody's bios. And so once again, the nonsense reappeared. So this is the length to which the communists are going and i keep using this word communists and if you think that makes me sound like some sort of extremist then know this that the background to this is that i used to work at 10 downing street ostensibly as a policy advisor one of the things i had to do was to make sure that various communist assaults on western civilization did not succeed in particular the miners strike of 1984 to 1985 it was I who had the task of making sure that that strike did not succeed. And among the intelligence that we were getting was from the late Ion Mihai Pachepa, Lieutenant General in the Romanian secret police. He was its head who had been headhunted and recruited by the then MGB, later the KGB, in 1945 to head a new directorate of disinformation in the MGB, whose job was to use Rufmort, this technique of reputational assassination, which the MGB had found in the archives of the Reichspropagandaamt, the Goebbels' propaganda ministry, in the Mitte district of Berlin, the central district where all the ministries were, because we, the Allies, had got there first, but we had hung back and allowed the Russians in. And they got all the records of the Reich's propaganda ministry because Goebbels had ordered them not to be destroyed. All the other ministries had had them destroyed. Goebbels didn't want the history of the foundation of the thousand year Reich to be lost. So it was all there. The Russians got the lot. And they saw that Goebbels had managed before they had taken control in Germany to silence all opposition by a ruthless and persistent campaign of reputational assault against anyone who had stood up and proven effective in speaking out against the Nazis. So the Russians had an aha moment. They decided they would do the same, and this new directorate was set up. But its founder, who went on to run it for the next 33 years until 1978, came out to the West in 1978 and told us everything. As a result of which, I was put alongside Arthur Scargill, the leader of the Miners' Union, a communist who was working with the disinformation directorate, to find out what he was up to. And we knew then there was going to be a, a minor strike. We were told all about it. And when the strike failed, because I'm glad to say that the steps that we put in place uh, did succeed in, in, in bringing the strike down, the next thing that happened was that in 1985, in the summer, they had a crisis meeting at the uh, headquarters of the KGB in the Lubyanka in Moscow to work out now that they could no longer rely on the trade union leaders who were mostly communists, even though the members weren't, to uh, destroy the Western economies, how were they going to do it? It was at that meeting 
that they decided to take over the environmental movement. And when I was in Orlando, Florida this spring, I ran into my old friend, Patrick Moore, who was one of the Canadian founders of Greenpeace. And I told him this because until quite recently, I haven't been allowed to say any of this, but now I can. It's long enough in the past. And Ion Mihai Pachepa is, is sadly yes. dead. He died a couple of years ago. And Patrick Moore went white. And I said, you know, what's happening? He said it was in December of 1985 that the Russians moved in and the communists took over Greenpeace and I and the other leaders of Greenpeace, because we were environmentalists, we were not communists, we were all yes. driven out. So when I use the word communist, I use it advisedly. Since 1985, when they lost the miners' strike, the Russians in particular, recently joined by the Chinese, and do you even know what the Chinese intelligence service is called? Have you ever heard its name? Not that I can think of off the top of my head, no. No. Well, it's called the Ministry of State Security, because I've got one of its badges somewhere. Um, and they are very secret, but they are now working increasingly closely with the Russians. In fact, uh, they're, they're now exporting something like 120% more to Russia than they did before the special military massacre in the Ukraine began, because they have stood by their fellow communists. So you're seeing an alignment of the communist-led nations, Russia, China, India, and Pakistan are the four biggest. And one forgets that India and Pakistan have been communist-led ever since independence, because the Russians helped them to get independence from the British. So their links with communism are very, very close. Those four nations, of course, are paying no attention at all to all the climate propaganda that their agents of influence are pushing all the time in yes. our country. So I thought I'd give that background because it is a factual background from one right, who well, was there. And it's quite important that people should know this is not just by accident that suddenly everybody is believing this climate drivel. Anybody who's ever looked at the science properly realizes that we don't actually face a threat at all. In fact, global warming has been and will continue to be slow, small, harmless and net beneficial. But the world isn't being told that because very large sums are being spent on silencing the likes of us. All right. Well, this is, we're going to take a break and we'll come back. And I want to ask you specifically about what COP28 is up to and the intentional rationing of food, uh, our transportation, our freedom of movement, the collapse of that and, and going after um, continued energy restrictions and what impact that's having. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT Radio. We're speaking with Lord Christopher Monkton. We'll be right back after these messages. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. This was Simone Sanders back in 2016, November to be precise. In my opinion, we don't need white people leading the Democratic Party right now. This was her last week on her own MSNBC show. Uh, I don't know, I haven't heard a high crime or misdemeanor yet. I, I completely understand. Are you going to let me answer the question, ma'am? I know you're a Democrat operative. You work for a Democrat consultant oh, firm. All right, Congressman, let's do it then since we're here. We are out of time, but we're going to do it. I used to, I did used to um, advise, I did used to advise a number of individuals. I've also advised some corporations and companies, but here I'm just here to be an advocate for the viewer. And I will ask you one last time, what is the evidence that the committee has that Joe Biden, while he was president, committed a high crime misdemeanor? demeanor or treason. Well, you have to ask yourself, ma'am, why does a vice president or a president get $40,000 
through a, a Chinese communist corporation. That has all been right. Well, with that, thank you all very much, Congressman. It's always a pleasure, but you just can't come on here and lie. Simone Sanders only survived her racist, we don't need white people remark back in 2016 because she's a radical leftist. And she eventually got her own show, and now she's able to tell a white male Republican congressman that he's a liar after she cuts his mic off. Only in America. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT. You are loved. You are valued. You are resilient. You got this. You are there for them. We are here for you. Find free care guides at aarp.org caregiving. From climate change to energy and environmental matters, you're listening to Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed. We're talking with Lord Christopher Moncton, a former Thatcher advisor and climate expert, Christopher, okay, I just got back from uh, a week in Dubai at this UN summit. It was my 18th summit out of the last 20 that I've attended to the UN, and I've been to two Earth summits. So that's 20 even, 20 out of the last 22 of these big UN and Earth and climate events. But at this event, I'll start with this. They literally were pushing for the 190 nations to agree on the phase-out of fossil fuels. And instead, I think the final language, the heroes of this meeting were United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. In fact, the United Arab, the Sultan Al-Jabbar actually said the UN had no science to support the 1.5 temperature degree. And he sounded, which is true if you look at climate gate, he also said we'd be living in caves if we follow this UN fossil-free future agenda. What do you make of this, uh, a whole COP28 and of the UN Climate Summit, and how could the UN possibly call for the end of all fossil fuels? Well, Sultan al-Jabbar is aware, among other things, of our result showing that the notion of large and dangerous warming was based on a hideous and quite elementary scientific mistake yes. right at the heart of the way they work out how much global warming there is. So he that's why he said, we know there's no science behind this. Yes. He is one of many nations that my team has quietly briefed at the invitation of their heads of government, usually, as in his case. And so they know perfectly well that this is all nonsense. And they also know perfectly well that if, they, if this was got away with, then oil prices might start to fall. And they certainly don't want that. So <laughs> their vested interest aligns with the scientific truth as it happens. And that's why they held the line so well. But what is going on is that the international left now reckons that having more or less totally silenced all opposition to the party line that they've been peddling so sedulously yeah. since the mid-1980s, that we have to shut the West down to save the planet. Yes. Uh, they are now going after major industry after major industry after major industry. They're going after uh, uh, the roast beef of old England, for heaven's sake. They're going after... Uh, growing avocados, they're going after our proper motor cars and making us have electric buggies, which nobody yes. now wants because the price of electricity to run these buggies yeah. is now many times the cost of the petrol to run a real car. 
And the cost of buying a real car is a fraction of what an electric buggy is. The cost of insuring uh, an electric buggy, you almost can't insure them anymore in Britain and in many other countries because they keep catching fire and setting fire to ships and whole multi-story car parks at Luton Airport. I mean, it's, it's catastrophic. So what is happening is that the left now sense the opportunity utterly to shut down the economies of the West. They We've already got Britain and many European countries and the United States on the ropes through having pushed up our electricity prices to six or eight times, five to seven hundred percent more than what they are in Russia, China, India and Pakistan. The four countries that are laughing all the way to the bank as they busily expand yeah. their networks of coal-fired power stations. Pakistan has just announced it's quadrupling its coal-fired power. And so why, given that those huge communist-led countries are all doing this, why are these various international committees so very anxious that we should shut our economies down when we are, on any view, no longer the problem? The answer is it's got nothing whatever to do with the climate. It never has had anything to do with the climate. It is all to do with the advancement of communism and the suppression and of the West and the ending. And they, this is what they're going for. They are trying to end the West's peaceful, democratic, prosperous economic hegemony of the world and replace it with their own grim dictatorship of those four big communist led giants of the East, together increasingly with several of the Arab countries, because of course, Muslim countries tend also to be essentially authoritarian or totalitarian dictatorships. The totalitarians of the world now have all the wealth, they now have all the power, they command our news media, they command therefore the way that those who are incapable of doing their own research will end up thinking. And this is a very, very dangerous moment for the West. The question is what to do about it. Well, Mark, I think what you and I do is the best we can do at the moment, which is to continue telling the truth until they finally silence us or lock us up, as they tried to do to me in Qatar. Um, <laughs> yeah. and as long as we keep speaking, uh, as long as the truth continues to be spoken, people will get to hear it. And one by one, they will begin to realize what nonsense this all is. The debate is already changing for a rather obvious reason. It is now so expensive to comply with all these mandates issued by the UN and by various left-wing governments like the supposedly conservative government in this country, that people are now beginning to jib and they're going to say, hang on a moment, why should we be doing this? The cost of doing this is now clearly 10 to 100 times greater than the cost of just letting global warming happen at the observed rate and adapting to it. Mm. And more and more people are realizing this. They're realizing that they themselves can't afford this anymore. And that's where these threats to the various industries are beginning to speak more and more directly to ordinary people who previously had thought that this climate debate was something that didn't really affect them. Now, more or less everybody knows this affects you and me. It affects yes. everyone. And that we will become, we will live in caves. I mean, I think Sultan <laughs> al-Jabba is quite right about yes. this, uh, unless we stop the communists in time. And so the communists now face a very considerable battle. We shouldn't be frightened of them. We should realize they are wicked. They're, they're organized in a way that the chaotic, cheerful democracies of the West never can be. But 
Their weakness is that they're wrong about everything. They are malevolent. They wish us harm. And gradually people are realizing this. You know, the Russians are invading Ukraine. The Chinese were straight into Afghanistan, having ordered Joe Biden and paid him a lot of money to, to pull out of Afghanistan. That's why the Americans left so precipitately without maintaining hard point defense at two or three airports, airports which would have been enough at virtually no on cost to prevent anyone invading and prevent the Taliban from re-establishing themselves. Why did Biden do this? Because the Chinese with whom he is working very closely and whom he is being paid by very, very substantially. They, he simply did what they, they told him. They are now in the huge lithium fields of Af Afghanistan, which by a very large margin are the largest in the world. And they are now busily uh, producing lithium at a rate of knots, and they now command something like, so it's between 70 and 90% of all the supply of lithium worldwide, even the Cornish lithium mines. We've got quite a bit of lithium in Cornwall, in the southwest of England, where I'm speaking from now. And three quarters of those mines are now owned and controlled by the Chinese, though most people in the British government have no idea that this is the case. In Greenland, they own the mines there. And all around the world, they've been quietly cornering the market in lithium and then pushing everybody into buying electric cars, which of course need lithium for their batteries. No other substitute is possible because even a lithium battery makes the car weigh anything up to 100% more than a real car, which means you're using twice as much energy as a real car would use per mile traveled. And of course it, it smashes up the roads much more because that goes as the fourth power of the difference in weight. So you're going to get four to five times as much damage to the roads by electric cars as by real ones. All I've even heard about that with parking garages. They're, they're not, may not be engineered for the heavier electric cars that could end up crushing. Well, this has been a big, big problem because you get yes. more than one or two of them on a, on a given floor of these things. They're all built fairly cheaply. They just collapse. There have been one or two collapses in the UK yes. as a result of this. And so now electric cars are being banned from multi-story car parks. They're being, you can't insure them. They're becoming less and less useful. And they're still not an adequate charging network. And the big problem with that is that even if there were adequate charging, the the, the queues that you're going to get into to wait for your turn and then it takes hours and hours to charge up your car yes. none of this makes any practical sense but that is the point the whole idea is to make is life as difficult expensive yes. and impossible in the west as they possibly can why do they do this pacheco was very interesting on this I said, why should they why should they worry about smashing up our economy he said, because your economies are so much better than ours, so much freer, so much more prosperous, so much more democratic. These are the things we all want in Russia. And if the Russians can smash up the Western economies so that nobody would want to go there, then they will feel safer. They will feel that the um, toppling of the previous communist regime will not be repeated with the present communist regime because the present communist regime is so skillfully telling all the people of Russia that life in the West is now becoming a lot worse than it is in Russia, China, India, Pakistan, mm. etc. And they'd be correct. There, <laughs> electricity is affordable. Here, it is not. Yeah. All right. We only have about, a, I guess, a little over a minute left or about a less than a minute left. 200 medical journals led by the British Medical Journal right before the UN yep. summit said that climate change should be considered a public health threat. In about 50 seconds, why are they pushing climate change, merging it into public health? What's the end game there? And then we're out of time. You, have about, you have about 15, it, 20 seconds, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's to keep people frightened. 
It's to make life even more impossible. It's to terrify people into agreeing with the Communist Party line, just at the point where economically they're beginning not to agree with it. So they're terrifying them by saying that climate change is unhealthy for you. In fact, right. it is handsomely beneficial. All right. Well, thank you very much, Lord Christopher Monkton. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. See you next week. Thank you.